Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The law is often seen as a complex and impenetrable subject. And quite frankly, it is. For Dickens, it was all dusty books and interminable lawsuits, some of which lost whole fortunes. For most of us, the closest we get is our blind clicking through pages and pages of terms and conditions every time we install something. However, law wasn't always like that. With trial by combat and trial by ordeal, the legal system in the Middle Ages could be quite exciting and exacting and painful. To give us a different perspective, today I'm talking to Daniel Shen-Smith, who combines the disciplines of martial arts with being a practicing barrister. He also has his own YouTube channel called Black Belt Barrister. Welcome to Future Imperfect. I suppose the best place to start is I'm, I'm an entrepreneur at heart and always have been. And I would say entrepreneurs are born, not made. I think it really is something of substance. So as a result, I've, I've never worked for anybody else. I've always been in business for myself. And I made that decision very early on, sort of sub 10 years old, I suppose. So whilst being to university, always had my own businesses. And for sort of better part of eight to 10 years now, one of those is a barrister's chambers. And more recently, a law firm authorized by the Bar Standards Board, which was a fairly pioneering law firm. And of course, I'm a barrister. So whilst I do all of that in the background, I've always done martial arts. So that's probably for the best part of 30 years, which is probably something you've also come across. Interestingly, it's the first thing anybody ever says to me when they've looked me up online is that I'm a black belt as well. And they find the two are interesting mix that go together. So hence the two YouTube channels, which is Black Belt Secrets and more recently Black Belt Barrister both of which were sort of brought about to help people because in the martial arts world, I had lots of people coming for one-to-one classes. And obviously there's only one of me and only so much time I had. So I turned to YouTube and it reached thousands of people. And now I'd like to do the same with law, hence Black Belt Barrister, and it's working very well so far. Yes, I kind of find that interesting because in many ways you represent an old concept, and I do to a certain extent as well, this concept of you don't have to overly specialise in just one thing. You can bring together two or more or multiple aspects and sort of it's almost a renaissance concept, the idea that you can specialise in more than one thing. And it gives you a different perspective, I think. How does your martial arts aspects and approaches sort of reflect into your law, does it at all, into your law practice? I think I can relate to both of those statements and questions in one, really, in that I think it's the work ethic and the skill base that one can bring to any ability, to any field of work. And hence, whilst martial arts is obviously very different to law, the approach can be very much the same in that you have to have this work ethic, relentless work ethic, and understand that it's going to take a long time before you really get anywhere. And that sort of old adage of the real training starts at black belt, I really believe that because the first sort of three or four years or however long 
depending on the art it takes you to get a black belt, I really think the real training starts there. And obviously for me, that was many years ago. It was like circa 1997 or something. I got my first black belt. So, Well, one of the interesting things I think about knowledge in general, and we'll get on to the sort of more of the subject of the medieval world and trial by combat in a bit. But one of the things I think is fascinating about studying something is this sort of knowledge appreciation curve that when you start out, you think, oh, I kind of know quite a lot about this. And then as you study more, you realize you really don't know much about the subject at all. And then you yes. kind of climb back out of this valley of despair where you realise the subject's so enormous you don't stand a chance. And you start to go, actually, I am slightly competent at this now. And then you realise that, you know, you are actually almost an expert. And it's sort of the same with the physical practice of martial arts in the variety of different ways. You know, it might be the sort of more traditional Eastern martial arts or my own personal area of the medieval stuff. But it's sort of the same in science, which is largely my background. And I I imagine it's the same as law. There's a process you go through. Absolutely, yes. As you were saying that, I can relate very specifically to the law degree because, um, I mean, many years before I did the law degree, I did A-level law. And I would probably say the first year of a law degree is very similar to A-level law. So I went in and it was a sort of double effect of, yes, as you just said, yes, I know quite a bit about this. But sort of by year two, then you realise actually, I need to spend quite a lot more time reading, otherwise I'm going to get lost in the material. And you literally read law, there's no exaggeration. And then by year three, you sort of get on top of how to do it. But what really brought it home for me was the bar course. Um, one of the tutors said at the very beginning was, this will be the most intense year or rather nine months of your life. And they weren't kidding, it really was. Certainly in its, its sort of current form or various current forms that it takes. And I think it comes back to those skills again, because that course really was teaching you the skills to be able to research something and to explore something, examine something, and then really understand it and apply it and analyze it. So it really comes down to those skills. And it does take time. It takes a lot of time and commitment. This concept of analysis, is it called construal? I'm trying to remember, is there a sort of way you construe an argument? Or is that something that judges do? You sort of go through and try and try and get rid of the he said, she said stuff, which yeah. everybody always has. And you go, right, how do we break this down into a sort of a logical thread? Is that something? Yes, indeed. Uh, there's lots of ways of looking at that. And I think it's called the Glazier's test, the sort of a, not IQ test, but you know what I mean, various ways of looking at different things. So you can draw inferences, you can make assumptions, and it can make you look at things in very different ways. So, you know, someone can tell you a set of facts or a scenario and you can tell that they've made an assumption based on those facts. But I might say, well, actually, you can't assume that this person knew that this was the case. Well, you, you can't assume that they did that just because of something else. You know, you may have drawn an inference, you may have made an assumption, and those are where the real arguments lie. So someone might think that something is done in bad faith, for example, but whereas you might say, well, just because they knew of the existence of something doesn't make it bad faith. It's all down to the intention. And so, yes, there, there's lots of different ways of analyzing those facts and arguments and the understandings. And I think that brings us on when I was doing some reading for today, you know, be it trial by combat, you know, trial by ordeal. The beliefs at that time, and I think it links into this, the beliefs at that time really were what sort of governed those practices. There's absolute belief that there is an almighty watching over and that the right outcome will prevail. And in a roundabout way, everybody that have religious beliefs of one form or another live by those rules today, still believe that there is an almighty and that justice will prevail overall. Yeah, it is interesting because I, I was trying to do some research as well and I was wondering what proportion of the population actually thought trial by combat was sensible way of solving it and what proportion of them thought it was a load of nonsense but it was the way society did it therefore i better keep quiet or i could get into trouble and the ones i've read about the, the trial by combat that i've read about particularly the more later one in in france that's very famous was typically for nobility it was typically for the sort of fighting class and it was sort of ties in with the notions of chivalry and uh, might is right. And and I wondered whether it shades into the idea of dueling as well, it's sort of this, this masculine approach to let's have a fight, but let's have it organised properly. We don't want to just yes. a, an ordinary brawl. We want a proper, decent gentleman's fight on the common. 
And um, this is a question you might not actually have the information, but dueling is presumably illegal technically today and was presumably banned or was it never banned? It just sort of fell out of favour. Yes, well, there's a number of aspects to that. I mean, the overriding principle today is you cannot consent to serious harm, of course, unless it's for you know medical purposes and, and things like that. Even engaging in sports, you know, such as boxing, rugby, you know, one accords to the rules of the game, as it were. And, mm-hmm. You know, you're not consenting to anything beyond that. Right. Um, so that, that's the general position. And of course, you know, abolition of the death penalty and even for things such as treason and piracy with violence, it wasn't until much more recent, um, 1998, uh, without checking. But you know, lots of these things have sort of more gradually been phased out over time than one might think. But going back and when I was doing the reading, it does seem that there was this belief that if we take, for example, trouble combat or you know, trouble battle, that the victor was right. He was watched over by God and therefore must have been innocent because he won the fight. That was yeah. even the case if his accuser had elected a champion in their stead. And that might be even against the government or an organisation. So sometimes these rules seem to fizzle out and then finally be sort of written out of the rule books almost generations later because nobody's actually applied them and everybody goes, that's just silly, we just ignore that. It does appear that the law is sometimes quite slow to react to new aspects of society. And and is that your feeling that these things get formally expunged, but before that nobody's really applied them anymore? Yes, that seems to be the case even here. It took a long time, and it wasn't until 1819, uh, Lord Eldon, the Lord Chancellor, introduced a bill, and all of the readings were done in one night, because there's a definite feeling that, as you just put it, this is ridiculous, it must stop, and effectively stopped overnight. Whereas abolition of the death penalty, whilst the act was 1965, it was sort of phased over five years, and even then remained for certain things for, for many years later. So that, again, took a long time. Law is is known to be slow to change, and whilst things do progress a lot more rapidly than they used to, law is trying to catch up and keep up. So I'd like to think law has improved. Again, forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but the principles of law in this country come from a very early phase of lawmaking. Uh, The common law, which is the sort of decisions made by people who are deciding these things, and then you've got the rules that are actually written down by people who are deciding the law. And that's in sort of stark contrast to Napoleonic law, which I think is is another thing where you've got lots of lawyers writing down theoretical what you can and can't do. So yes, obviously we have common law, which you're right, it is decisions made and applied to any given set of facts. So the idea being that another case comes along that's almost identical or near enough that that decision should be applied to the same case as it was before then that's that. And that's generally the decision. And obviously, with the hierarchy of the courts, the higher the decisions, binding on lower courts, and so on. Even that's extrapolated out with European decisions. But then when we have legislation, and this is when there's often a lot of confusion as to whether there's a difference between common law, legislation, acts of parliament, whether they apply, whether they apply by consent. But acts of parliament, it's codified law. So there may be lots of decisions in a given area, for example. Then there's various regulations either brought in by our own ministers or from Europe, they are then codified and it becomes primary law. And so it will, in some instances, it will override some case decisions. By codified, you mean sort of written down in technical language in in a a document. And that's kind of interesting as well, because impacting on us as martial artists, the sort of wider decisions by society, like the rule on knives, for example. So I live on a farm and I use a knife all day, every day for lots and lots of different things. And so I have to be very careful if I leave my own property that I've got a legal knife, And which, of course, for some of our listeners in America may find very surprising because obviously there are totally different laws there. But in this country, those are largely enacted, I believe, to control inner city violence and that kind of thing. And then there was a thing on samurai swords, and there are some extraordinary ninjas. Ninjas appear to have particularly exercised the lawmakers uh, a yes. few decades ago. Things like throwing stars and nunchucks and, and stuff. Yes. 
I mean, these yes. are all illegal, but they're specially described in law, aren't they? They're, they're what they actually are. Yes. I mean, there's a number of reasons for it, and they're usually obvious. And there's various categories. So certain things are just outright banned, like the throwing stars are outright banned. And there's a list of them, which I do link to in one of my videos, and I describe some of them. And as for, yes, the swords, there was an outright ban at one stage, but then it's sort of, they created certain exemptions. So if it's traditionally made or if it is an ornamental piece, then that's okay. Because I often say that the law is and usually should be about common sense, to which most people usually tell me, well, common sense is not that common. But <laughs> nonetheless, I think a lot of law, most law should be about common sense. If it should really be controlled, then that's what the law should say. And, and the idea behind the knife laws, they are quite strict. But the idea is just to make it an offence to have a knife or something like that, where you, you really shouldn't have it. There shouldn't be mm. any need for it. And that's why there is this specific defence and a, a small exemption. I think it is a small exemption with the folding pocket knife. But the defence is a good reason. So, you know, if you are found on a farm with a knife and you're doing something, even if it's not your work or, you know, let's say it's a public place in that instance, if it's a very good reason, and it's obviously a good reason, I would like to think that there is an exercise of some common judgment and good sense that you have a good reason to be there. And likewise, there's lots of discussions, you know, around bushcraft and lots of people say, well, we absolutely need to have a knife in what we're doing. It's part and parcel of doing what we do. And I would like to think that if there's a good reason in there, that's what the law is for. Whereas if you were to contrast that with someone walking around with a 12-inch kitchen knife in a city town centre, I can't think of any possible good reason you'd have. Yes. And those circumstances could change as well, because I'm aware there was a situation down in Hastings quite a few years ago with reenactors who are performing um, private land, doing it for English heritage and reenacting the Battle of Hastings. And they have swords and most of them are blunt. So I'm not sure whether they would fall into the category of actual swords. But, you know, nonetheless, they look quite threatening. And lots of people went to the pub outside afterwards in kit. And a couple of people went with swords in kit. Yeah. And they were seen brandishing them in the pub garden and caused alarm. And quite rightly, in my opinion, were arrested and got into a lot of trouble as a result of it. And lots of people said, yeah, but they were reenacting. And the point was, yeah, but they weren't reenacting in the pub at the time. They may have been before. And, and so yes. the issue is the context. And context is one of those important things that hopefully the courts will analyse. Yes, they are very narrowly interpreted, these sets of facts. So let's say you're just storing something in a van as a matter of course, and it was always in public because it's, say, parked you know, on the street, that's not necessarily a good reason to have it there. Whereas, obviously, if you're driving to work with it and it's in the van, that's obviously a good reason. Forgotten about it is generally not a good reason. Picking up on one of your points as well, whether it's sharp or dull, this really draws up lots of questions because the act refers to the length of the cutting edge. Now, if I were to hold up a ruler to you and say it's got an edge you know, a full-size ruler, 30 centimetres long. If I were to sharpen very deliberately one part of it so that it's razor sharp, but only two inches, those two inches, some might say, is within the legal exemption. But of course, it's not because the whole thing is much more than three inches, mm -hmm. which is, and it's not folding and so on and so on. So that's been tested in court. And it was a butter knife in that case. And the butter knife was obviously not sharp, but was a blade nonetheless. And so it was held to be, whereas a screwdriver was held not to be because that was just a tool. So they are very narrowly interpreted and analysed on any given situation. And as you said, if someone is reenacting and it's a designated event, that's one thing. But turning up at the pub with the sword later, what you'll expect, and I expect the courts would have looked at in that particular case, was anyone that, say, wasn't part of the reenactment is confronted effectively by someone in, in sort of full kit with a sword, probably not <laughs> expecting it. Even if it was obvious that they were just there after an event, they might still be intimidated by it. And I think that's sort of the point. And it can go further than that. So if you were to turn up in town with a sword, for example, it might even amount to assault because that's obviously giving fear of immediate harm to somebody. So Again, they all looked at on their individual mm. facts and merits. 
So going back to an earlier phase, obviously Magna Carta is something that has been in the news for quite a lot of reasons. Yeah. And it's beloved of certain conspiratorially minded people about what rights it does give you and doesn't give you. And if you've read it, which I have, and I'm sure you have, it's obsessed yeah. with fishing and fish weirs as well. But that was the first, as I'm aware of it, that was the first attempt to limit the rule of the monarch from William the Conqueror's time, who said, right, all of this is mine and I've got the soldiers to prove it, overriding thousands of years of, of other parts of society. They wanted to try to control that king because the, the king was being a bit random. And the idea of having other people judge, judged by your peers, of course, it really only applied to the barons anyway. So that's a fairly interesting document, although widely misquoted and misused, I think, these days. Does it have any relevance today other than historical value? Is it still partly law in any way? Well, there's only, I think it's four parts that are still valid today. And that the most, 39 and 40 from memory now, are the most sort of prevalent today. And that, of course, is trial by jury. So mm. that prevails. And that really is the main thing, I would say, that's of any real relevance today. There was a wonderful clause in it when I last read it, which I think was about the sort of senior barons being able to come together and steal the king's castles and goods if the king wasn't doing the right kind of thing. And I just had this vision of all the barons getting together and basically stealing castles from the king, you know. And as a threat to somebody who came from a society where a lot of people would have believed the divine right of kings, in a way, it's quite a brave document because it's slightly, well, it's heavily overriding that divine right and saying, no, the rule of, well, humanist rule, basically us. Okay, the barons who have their own castles and soldiers, but it's the beginning of the control of that side of things. And you could argue, and it was argued by the Pope, because I believe it was basically annulled by the Pope, that yes. it was going against God's word. But it's a very interesting early document for the rise of secular rulemaking, perhaps. I think linking with, well, the fairly common recent argument of consent and being governed by <laughs> consent, I think the idea probably was really kicking about then. And as you say, it then applied to the barons. But as we see it today, I mean, consent, it's at best, it's common consent. And that, of course, is an elected government who is then invited to form a government in her name by Her Majesty. So that's my sort of modern interpretation of governed by consent. It's a common consent as, as an mm -hmm. election. You, you have the choice to vote or not. I mean, a lot of people don't. I suppose in that way, society revolves around consent. I mean, the, the idea of money is an interesting one. The, you know, people were talking about electronic forms of money like Bitcoin and Dogecoin yeah. or Doggycoin. I always want to call it Doggycoin rather than Dogecoin. I'm never sure which it is. And people go, yeah, but they're, they're not worth anything. And then I look at a piece of paper that's printed with a 50 on it and think, is that worth 50 pounds? And what is being worth 50 pounds anyway? And the whole thing can become a bit abstract if you look at it too much. I guess, arguably, it's the same with the law. It's a set of rules we've all agreed to, but there have been massive upheavals in societies where everybody's gone, we'll have to throw away this old law and start again. I mean, the French Revolution, for example, you could argue that the, the English Civil War as well, and Cromwell, where they basically threw all the parliamentarians out. There's not a single honest man in this chamber. They said, <laughs> clear the chamber. Um, and could you see, and we're hypothesising, but... Could you see in the future some revolution, in inverted commas, like that happening with the way the law is applied, maybe with artificial intelligence or machine learning somehow? Yeah, well, it's very interesting because when I was giving this chat some thought today, I was really thinking that the way people settle their disputes today, I suppose I can say it is a different form of trial, isn't it? Where, you know, trial by ordeal or trial by combat, this is a different sort of combat because it's no secret that if one were to go as a litigant in person against a you know magic circle law firm with a leading barrister, he or she will stand much less of a chance in the case, not just mm -hmm. because of not being able to research it and the costs of doing so. But as I often say to clients, and I, I say in some of my videos, I say, well, one of the reasons you absolutely must take legal advice is because you don't necessarily know whether or not you have a valid defense. Because 
if you are, let's say you're accused of doing something, it doesn't matter what it is, but if you're accused of doing something, but there is a legal, very valid defense that means, well, although you've done it, let's say it's self-defense for argument's sake, Mm. you may not know that you have that defense unless you've taken legal advice. So then we do come back to the principle that if you can't afford the legal advice, then you, you may well have defendants admitting guilt to things that they have a defense for. You may well have litigants in person losing cases because they don't know how to present the evidence. I've heard, well, heard and read in many of comments from lots of people saying that they they haven't had their evidence heard at court because, you know, they turned up with three bundles of it on the day and the court wouldn't hear it. And obviously that's because there are rules about when it should be served and how it should be served, what format even, uh, witness statements, you know, specifying the size of font, for example. So if one turns up with a perfectly winnable case, but all the evidence just isn't heard because it's not being served properly and so on. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It comes back to this idea of, well, this really is a trial by a sort of non-physical kind of combat, isn't it? It's legal combat. That's interesting because trial by combat, often you were allowed to choose a champion. You were allowed to substitute somebody else because even back in the Middle Ages, I think they believed that it was unlikely that somebody who couldn't fight could beat somebody who could fight. (laughs) And even in German medieval treaties, I've seen situations where you are having trial by combat between a man and a woman and they're both sewn into leather suits and the woman has a rock in her veil and the man has one hand tied behind his back and is waist deep in a pit dug into the ground. So they obviously had some concept of making it fairer, even if they believe that the combat would be overseen by a higher power and the right person would prevail. I mean, some fantastic illustrations of that. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, how often that was actually enacted, I don't know. But the idea of having legal representation is you effectively paying for champions to fight it out. I mean, almost literally that. Yes, indeed. And I mean, it cannot be any secret that if one can afford the very best legal representation, then you have the better chance of winning against someone that doesn't. And that is a fact. And that really is one of the driving forces behind me doing this latest channel, Black Belt Barrister. And however cliche it might sound, I I think law should be accessible to everybody. And even though I am really just scratching the tip of the iceberg with the videos that I put out, it's already evident that they are helpful and everybody should have this sort of access to it. But when you get deep into a case, it's quickly clear that they can be so complex that you do need the lawyers to look into it for you. And I think the language used as well, because the physical language of trial by combat was very organized and systematically done. There were rules about it. There were people watching. I mean, even things like dueling had a very strict set of rules. You know, sometimes it was to first blood. Sometimes it was to one shot each. And, you know, you weren't meant to run away. And in some cases you had seconds whose job was to make sure you didn't run away as opposed to look after you. And you could have surgeons on hand to immediately be there to provide medical aid. And so all of these do get more and more stylized. And you could argue, I mean, whilst you could probably actually have a proper fight in court with your abilities, um, <laughs> most other people probably don't specialize in that area. But it is a combat. It's very clearly a combat, but it's a cerebral combat. It's a combat of ideas and presentation and how you present the idea as well and how persuasive you can be, I presume. And personalities come into it as well, I would think, to a certain extent. Yes, I think so. And there is a certain way of putting arguments across. And 
it doesn't have to be, well, it certainly shouldn't need to be aggressive in any way. I would say, you know, legal argument should be exactly that. It's an argument based upon facts and law and thereby on interpretation of a judge or finding a fact by a judge or a jury, of course. And in essence, it is saying that one thing happened over another and that the law either permits or prohibits what happened, or it's a finding of fact, in which case you've either in a civil case, it's, well, who was right? And we don't like to say it was right and wrong or win and lose, but ultimately that's really what it is. And certainly with criminal cases, um, and one of the arguments about um, you know, why we got rid of the death penalty and why we have appeals processes is because I like to say, if we are going to punish somebody for doing something wrong, then we really should be absolutely sure. And so whilst we have um, the criminal test uh, burden of proof is beyond reasonable doubt, but the test given to the jury these days is phrased so that they can properly understand it, so that they have to be sure of what it is that they are deciding. They must be sure. That's quite a difference then. So technically it's beyond reasonable doubt, which means if you doubt this, you are being unreasonable uh, by definition. But now the juries, and juries are unskilled at the law, I suppose, almost by definition, they're sort of ordinary people. So the idea that they're they're guided in, in how to make a decision not what decision to make, but how to make that decision. Yes. And so that's usually going to be put across by the judge in summing up. So the judge in a criminal case, obviously, the judge will sum up the case as to uh, what's been proffered by each side and then give any directions that are necessary. And direction would be in, in the sense of what they need to decide. The judge might say that the defence has raised self-defense and said that, yes, the defendant accepts that he did this action and hurt somebody, but says that it was in self-defense. And then the jury must be sure, if persuaded by the prosecution, that it was not in self-defense. So there's a shifting of this burden of proof all the time. So the defense in that example wouldn't have to prove that it was self-defense. It's Mm. just offered forward, but it must be raised as a self-defense. And then the prosecution must must uh, prove the case so that the jury is sure that it was not self-defense. Which arguably is quite a high standard because witnesses and, and, and information and belief at the time is all quite complex. And the jury has to unpick quite a lot of complex motivations in some cases. Obviously, in some cases, I imagine it's blitheringly obvious. And in other cases, it's much more marginal and therefore comes down to the jury's opinion over it. But I was actually going to ask you about alternate dispute principles and resolution, because arguably trial by combat is a form of alternate dispute resolution. But today we often have things like that, where courts are expensive, time consuming, can take a long time to be heard. And there's a lot of emphasis, I think, recently on trying to get the parties to reach an agreement before they ever get to court. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And I can speak to that because, as well as being a barrister, I'm a mediator as well. So, And I can say that every mediation that I've either conducted as a mediator or been part of, either as the lawyer or observing, because we're required to observe mediations before we conduct our own, have all settled either on the day or very shortly afterwards. And so if you compare that to the process of going through court, a mediation is ordinarily conducted in either half a day or one day. Whereas if they were to have proceeded to court, would have probably taken another year, maybe two, and probably 50 to 100,000 pounds of costs on either side. Mm. And you compare that with what the parties pay for one day, it's infinitesimal. And absolutely, I'm a big proponent of mediation and alternate dispute resolution. And it's forcing people to actually confront the issue and get it solved and get it out of the way because, you know, things hanging over you can impact quite dramatically on your life because you just haven't had a resolution. And sometimes living without a decision can actually be really quite traumatic for people. And that's the thing. It's living with it and you hit it on the head, really. It's something that parties will have to live with 24-7. And most people that I've come across, most clients that I've had, that's the one thing that drives them to any kind of resolution is the fact that they wake up 
and it's the first thing they think about and they'll randomly think about it during the day and then it's the last thing they think about when they go to bed and when they get a letter through the post they panic that it's a letter about this and an email mm-hmm. and a phone call and so on and so on and that's even the case you know whether it's a couple of thousand pounds maybe or or even less in some cases you know i've had clients get just as worked up over a few hundred pounds worth of a, of a claim that's going through and with the backlog in the courts as well I've I've had small claims take probably a year to a year and a half to go through court. It's a long time for somebody to be tied up in the process. And the process isn't necessarily so much more straightforward just because it's small. There are some simplifications. One of the big ones is costs. So if we're talking monetary claims, a claim not more than £10,000, um, generally parties are not at risk to costs other than fixed costs. So issue issue costs and hearing costs and things like that. But that just takes out some of the pressure of paying lawyers. But then, of course, if parties want to pay lawyers, they can't ordinarily claim those back unless there's been unreasonable behavior on the other side. And it still winds them up for a long time. Whereas a mediation, it's over and dealt with. Yeah. And even if you lose, that can be quite a relief because at least it's done and dusted now and you can be angry about it. But it's solved and you can move on. But I was going to say the idea that that one of the ideas in Magna Carta was that justice should not be unduly delayed either. And one wonders uh, whether they imagined taking a year and a half to two years to reach the courts would fall foul of those provisions of delaying. Because I believe that in medieval period, depending on which period you're looking at, the courts used to actually travel around and there might be one big court a year in a in a town, and everything had yes. to sort of save up for that and all be heard at the same time. Yes, well, that's where the circuits come from. So, you know, the Southeastern Circuit and so on. So they were a circuit where initially the king, obviously, and eventually others were going around on the circuit to hear these cases and make decisions, and those terms survive. Moot was the original term for court. Now it's used as a as a mock trial. And so, yes, they were moved around. And the principles of speediness and expedience, they do survive today. It is simply a matter of the number of cases going through the system. And, of course, with the pandemic, hasn't helped much (laughs) uh, with so many tens of thousands of cases in the backlog. They are just taking time. Yeah. So if you were doing alternate dispute resolution, could the two parties agree to have a fistfight over who was right and who was wrong? Would that not be an acceptable solution? (laughs) Well, no. I mean, the idea being, how would you judge it? I mean, if you were judging it on some kind of injury coming out of it, you you couldn't consent to some sort of injury in that sense. I mean, I suppose there's some merit in looking at other ways you could resolve it. Now, of course, one of the big benefits of alternate dispute resolution is it's much more flexible. If you put it this way, if you get a judge... The way I try to explain it to clients is that when you go to court, you're effectively asking the court to make a decision because the two of you can't. And that's really as simple as you can make it. And so when you ask the judge to make a decision, then you're asking for a remedy. And really, there's only a handful of remedies. The biggest one is money, because it's an amount of money that compensates or puts something right, you know, either fixes a roof or compensates somebody from let's say, being disabled for the rest of their life. Obviously, stark difference between the two, but the only real way a court can judge that is award an amount of money that that helps. But what if a party just wants somebody to apologise? Now, a a court can't and a court won't order that. Oh, right. Um, Okay, so you can't be made to apologise? No. Whilst a court could, let's say if it was a, let's say, I always use the example of a roof because, you know, if if a roof's leaking, you might as well not have a roof. So I often think that if you've had a really bad job of a roof done, a court could order the company to come back and fix it. But because the relationship between the parties is probably torn down by now, a court is not likely to order that. A court is likely to say, well, what's it going to cost to repair it? You know, another £1,000, £5,000 and award that instead. And then the party with the bad job can then pay someone else to get the roof done. So In theory, a court could order the return to fix the roof, but probably won't. But when it comes to an apology, um, no, a court's not going to order that. Whereas alternate dispute resolution, yeah, of course, they can agree with an apology. And that in itself can become a binding contract. 
So what they do is they form up, you know, in the case where there's live proceedings, they draw up what we call a Tomlin order. It's like a consent order where parties are agreeing to bring the proceedings to a close on a set of agreement that they've reached between each other. Often it's in a schedule, so it's not actually filed with court, so it remains confidential. And parties can agree, in essence, anything they like. Very often, in fact, where, let's say, two businesses have have majorly fallen out over contract terms and payments and so on, very often they will agree to new terms, new contracts that they hadn't even discussed before, but it forms a new contract to settle the existing dispute and any disputes that arise out of the original facts. Again, there's no way a court could possibly get involved in that. So in many ways, the sort of formal court system is less flexible in outcome than than the alternate dispute resolution. It's not to say it doesn't have a use, obviously, because parties don't always want to settle. Um, It may not always be possible to settle. They do want an outcome. Uh, I'm not going to use any particular type of company or organisation as an example, but if you had an organisation that simply refused to cooperate or settle or whatever, Mm -hmm. but there was clearly a wrong, then it's only right that there is a mechanism of a third-party judicial intervention to say, no, this was wrong. This individual or, or, or whoever deserves some compensation because of the wrong, and only a court can award that. Mm. Um, quick question, more about sort of medieval law and that kind of stuff. From your memory, what's the sort of oldest practical law that's still sort of used or mentioned in court as a law from 1720 that everybody still agrees to or goes further back than that is the one like that that everybody knows about right there's quite a few um i mean the one that springs to mind as you said it was the offenses against the person act 1861 so again in the comments that i get on my videos a lot of people will say well this is really old law we should replace it and update it but my response to that is well it, it is updated but the basic principles are still there. So offences against the person, well, it it is what it sounds. It's an offence committed against another person. So it's some form of harm. And so you have this hierarchy of harm within those. So whilst this is an old law, you might say, um, they will be older. And many, many cases go back earlier than that. And, And they are common law precedents that survive today and are still used today because they're still good law. So again, it comes back to common sense. So like if, if something was was a very solid decision, albeit made a long time ago, uh, a lot of them are shipping cases. Maritime law is very, very old, isn't it? Arguably, maritime law is one of the oldest branches yes. of law, I believe. Yes, I believe so. And obviously, lots of those decisions will be based around shipping delays, who's responsible, because when you get into these sort of hypothetical scenarios, you can really you can really find some difficult decisions to make. So who's responsible for the goods? Let's say party A is in one country and party B is in another country, but it's going to take in those days maybe a year to get the ship there. Let's say it sunk halfway or it was hijacked. Who's responsible for it? Who do they belong to? Who takes the loss? Who's lost what and who's to blame for it? Even if arguably neither party is to blame because the ship was attacked by pirates but somebody has to take the blame in the commerce. That's interesting. Yeah, so, so lots of those decisions survive today because they've just come before the courts. They've been examined in those scenarios. And some of them are just such overarching principles that they don't really change too much. Things such as giving notice, you know, so we have the postal rule when things are posted. And, you know, these days, lots of people sort of insist on sending something by special delivery and registered post and everything else, which is good to see that it's tracked, but actually just sending it in ordinary post is still deemed to be good service today. So one of the things I was going to ask you is, is especially during a pandemic, obviously people have not been doing things in person. Things like signatures, I've always felt the signature or seal. I mean, obviously back in the day, certain people, the documents had to be sealed. And I believe that stamp duty comes from the need for the king to take a piece of tax on every transaction. And he basically, I think it was Henry VIII, I might be wrong, said, this document is not legal unless I've got the stamp on it, which is my piece of the pie, basically. The king wants his piece of the pie. And you see things like Magna Carta and some of the charters of the forest, and they often have seals, wax seals that represent 
knightly characters and, and that kind of stuff. And I presume the signature evolved from that, people making their mark on documents is something yes. that came along later, perhaps? Yes, and then there's been lots of discussion over what constitutes a signature. Certainly at one point, an electronic signature was not a signature in the eyes of the court, whereas it is now. And then there's been arguments as to whether it was a, a handwritten signature, albeit electronic, as opposed to typing your name at the bottom of an email. So now typing your name at the bottom of an email is good enough to say that it might as well be your signature. You've effectively signed your name before sending it. But as you mentioned the pandemic, one thing I had to look up, in fact, was whether or not deeds, because of course, deeds do need to be witnessed in person. Then there's a whole discussion because of everybody working remotely as to, is it okay to have somebody remotely witness a signature over Zoom or whatever? And all my, you know, my research came to the point, well, probably not. But actually, if, you know, if, if parties are going to agree to it, then it might well be down to the parties. But there's certainly an argument. That, that's interesting. So the concept of physically being in the same space is different from physically witnessing. Because you can imagine being in the same room, watching somebody sign is one thing. So you could then abstract that one level and say, I'm in a different room looking through a window that probably still counts as, as witnessing the signature, but you're not in the same room, then you could abstract it and say, but I'm looking at a camera that's looking at it, and that isn't potentially witnessing. Yes, and, exactly. and so therefore, there's some difference in law conceptually. I, can't, I can see it, but it's kind of narrow, isn't it? Where you go, so the difference between looking through a piece of glass and looking through some electronics is sufficient to make it different in the eyes of yes. the law. For the moment, because presumably there could be a court case that would then change that and it would then be sorted out one way or the other. Yes, there's various rules. I mean, CCTV's the example. So, you know, there's various rules about, let's say, an officer witnessing something via CCTV and whether that's admissible or whether they can amount to be a first person witness and things like that. And then, of course, a lot of the arguments are always going to be around whether it was good enough quality. And for some reason, you know, most people take out a phone and it's HD and you can see everything in perfect clarity. As soon as you get to CCTV, it's tiny, monochrome and and pixelated, so you can't really see anything. I mean, there's some interesting stuff there, you know, in terms of the way that artificial people are being generated as well. And I mean, obviously, there's lots of issues over the reliability of human witnesses. You know, people are very can be very mistaken. And there's a fantastic psychology experiment I saw once with a video, and they asked the question, how many times is this ball passed between these group of people? And then at the end they go, and did you see the man in the gorilla suit walking past? And I have to say, I didn't see the man in the gorilla suit until I rewound it and went, oh, how did I miss that? So people's perception is always open to interpretation. People see faces in flock wallpaper and in tea stains and that kind of stuff. So human brains have evolved to look at threats in an interesting way. Therefore, the court has got to unpick that and try to work out whether frightened witness number one is actually at all reliable or super brave witness number two, who definitely saw a totally different person is is, is reliable. And that, that's also quite difficult to do because both witnesses may honestly believe Yes. that they saw the truth of the matter, but their witnessing is not necessarily the same. Absolutely. It's an interesting story, actually. My very first work experience was with the Queen's Council in uh, one of the chambers in Birmingham. Obviously, I was 15 or 16 at the time, and um, I went in and, um, you know, he said, what's the best way to get an idea for what this kind of work is like? Which I suppose is a bit of an unusual question, but he gave me a, a stack of documents. And he said, just read those and then you'll have an idea. And what it was, was a stack of witnesses about a big brawl that happened in Birmingham. And each one was obviously two or three pages long from, there's probably close to 30 something witnesses in there. And each one was a very, very slightly different account of these (laughs) group of people fighting. And I was writing down the descriptions of, of each person until such a point that I realized this is nonsense because There were so many different perspectives and points of view. No one can be sure what happened if they all turn up to give evidence Mm. because it was so different. 
but they all genuinely believed enough to commit to a police statement and sign it. Mm. That that's, that's what happened. Yeah. And so that's sort of why the courts have always had to try and interpret the human side. And, and I suppose why they mostly arguably get it right, but sometimes get it wrong. And just looking back through some of the minor courts in the medieval period in particular, and you know, things that bothered ordinary people, not so much kings and barons, but things like people's pigs escaping into their garden and eating their turnips or people's yeah. cesspits. The, the medieval period seems obsessed with cesspits. Cesspits yeah. often collapse, aren't emptied, are filled in or dug too close to the boundary wall. And I was thinking these are all very, very human scale issues that still affect us now. The neighbor's fence falls down and it really annoys us to the point of distraction. In a grand scheme of things, historically, it doesn't make much difference. Your empires are not going to fall over the, over the collapse of a, of a fence, but it means the world to the people involved. And it's really important that it's solved. But it's absolutely fascinating with the exception of livestock escaping. You could just change the names, change the settings, and there would be modern magistrate courts. And funnily enough, I actually started on um, TikTok, believe it or not, as uh, probably the only barrister on there to begin with. Again, um, some of my first videos were about um, garden law, because probably like everyone else working from home, realized um, you know more about the garden than we probably ever did before. And lots of arguments about um, lots of inquiries coming in about you know, my neighbor's doing this, my neighbor's doing that. And what about this tree? And what about the roots? And, and so there's obviously there's lots of rules around that as well. Um, mm. What we're really talking about going back with this, you know, the cesspits and escape of animals and essentially they come to some kind of nuisance or another and some kind of trespass or another and some kind of easement or another, which is obviously one land having um, some kind of right um, or priority over another, or um, profit to ponder is, a, is another phrase where one land might have the right to take something for benefit from another land. Let's say if there was um, you know, fruit or vegetables available and it was supposed to be common to various areas, each of the surrounding land had the right to take the food from that place. And hmm. so you've got these arguments, and you're right, you could just switch out the fact that it's this escape of you know, pigs or whatever. Yeah to someone having a, a gas flu pointing at your property, which now obviously will have building regulations as to how close it can be, how wide it's got to be, how high off the ground it's got to be, and so on. And so the law tries to cut off each of these elements of difficulties that people have and isolate responsibilities. Um, who's responsible for what? Even in the medieval period, this book of nuisances I was reading, the, the courts actually ruled against members of the nobility from time to time. There's one particular case where it appears that the, the lady of the manor wanted to extend some buildings and the good people of the town said, but we won't be able to get our carriages, our, our carts around that corner if you do. And they said, you can't build an extension to your house. And I thought that was kind of interesting because it clearly shows that there were there was an assertion of the value of society at large over the nobility, over the wealthy and moneyed yeah. class. And I thought it was interesting because you don't typically think of socialism in its modern sense back in the medieval period. But in fact, there were very strong rules to limit and control and manage that kind of behavior, especially when you look in the court records. You can see very clearly people saying, no, you can't do that. That will be bad for everybody. And I guess modern courts are trying to do the same. They're trying to keep a lid on exploitation to a larger extent. Yeah, and I think it's also enshrined and rolled out locally with so obviously local authorities. I mean, let's say um, I'm not a planning specialist by any means, but if we look at, say, planning regulations and planning law, there's the overarching law that is then applied locally by local authorities and they set up their own planning portals and things like this and guides as to what you can and can't do. You know, the amenity and having the, the street effectively look the same all the way through. So you can't, you can't have, for example, if you've got a row of detached houses, you couldn't have someone just build a block of flats that just was completely mm. out of character and proportion with everything else because it doesn't look the same and it, it affects the amenity of the, the entire mm. area. 
and there you get the distances and how far away properties can be and things like that. Just to sort of summarise then, trial by combat is no longer a valid <laughs> a valid <laughs> thing to bring up. So I stand no chance whatsoever of having an argument with somebody going, right, I'll fight you. That's disappointing, but understandable, I suppose. No, somebody did try it. I think it was 2002. I think he was given a fine of £25 and turned up at court and tried to exercise his ancient right to uh, trial by combat. It didn't work, actually. Trumped up his uh, fine. I think he got fined £200 with costs on top of it or something <laughs> for, for his, uh, his efforts. But... Well, A for effort there. I would encourage that. No, I wouldn't encourage it because it's a waste of court time. But it's quite astonishing that people would go to court in that sort of serious official way and genuinely claim that i mean it's not even the place really to make jokes i wouldn't have said but you know absolutely not and not to make threats either i mean whilst you know many many of us have been in practice much longer than i have but um even while i've been practicing i would say at least once a month i've seen somebody dragged out of court for shouting and arguing with the judge <laughs> right and okay. I, it does baffle me honestly because i just think this is not right it's not civil and in any event, it's only going to end one way and they'll be removed from the building. So I encourage everybody in everything that I do and everything that I say, I encourage everybody to be civil with everybody else, even though you might well be arguing with somebody. I think one of my recent videos, I say that the consumer is not always right. This old saying of the customer is always right. No, actually, the customer is not always right. And it, it certainly doesn't give anyone the right to be rude and disrespectful. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole other area we could talk about. Maybe we should do another one about entitlement and how people feel that the world should revolve around them and, and where that comes from. But I think for now, I think we've had a really nice ramble through. We've touched on Magna Carta, conspiracy theories and trial by combat in an interesting way. I'm going to have to do a bit more digging into trial by combat because I would love to find out when it was officially well, if I can point you in the right direction, I haven't read it, so I can't profess that I have, but the late Sir Robert McGarry wrote a book, A New Miscellany at Law, in 2005. Okay. So that would be, I think, the first thing I would go and read. And now I'm even more in, in, intrigued to go and read it. Apparently there's a, there's a certain level of humour inserted into it as well. Excellent. I look forward to reading. Brilliant. Was there anything else you wanted to sort of let our listener know about before we draw this to a close? Anything we've forgotten to mention that you want to bring up? I suppose I would leave people with the, the sentiment that anyone that is in any kind of dispute with anyone else, I would say there is always a civil way to resolve it. Obviously, you know, I'm not talking about criminal trials. Um, an everyday dispute, there is a civil way to deal with it. And we run with the, the sort of motto, no opinions, no emotion, and just deal with it civilly. And if anyone wants to learn any more, hear any more, any of my thoughts, obviously check my channels out. And I'm happy to respond to questions and make new videos as I have done. I've made videos in response to questions and comments. I'm happy to do that. Excellent. Well, that's really good to know. And then at some stage, we should delve into your martial arts background a little bit as well and have a whole conversation, not about law, but about martial arts, <laughs> about historic European martial arts yeah. and all of that area, because I think that's fascinating as well. That would be a whole conversation by itself. <laughs> <laughs> but for now, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure's mine. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.